How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Fuel efficiency for pickup trucks and big rigs has flatlined for decades. Well, that's about to change. Last summer, the federal government and the trucking industry agreed to increase mileage standards by 20% by 2018. The White House says that increased efficiency will save the owner of a big rig more than $70,000 in fuel costs over the life of an 18-wheeler. Most of those savings will be achieved with improved aerodynamics and other existing features. Yet volatile oil prices are driving commercial truck owners to look further and consider emerging technologies, including alternative liquid fuels, natural gas, and trucks that run on electricity all or part of the time. Pickup trucks are also set to become more efficient. Rules passed this year call for light-duty trucks, which include pickups, minivans, and SUVs, to increase their fuel economy to 30 miles a gallon by 2016, up from about 26 miles today. I'm Greg Dalton. In the next hour, we'll discuss Powering America's Trucks with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club of California. Joining us for this Climate One conversation, we have three trucking experts. John Bosell is CEO of CalStart, a transportation consulting firm. And David Mazaika is Chief Operating Officer of Quantum Technology, a California-based company that makes um, drive systems and other technology for trucks and other other transportation systems. And Mike Tunnell is Director of Environmental Affairs for the American Trucking Association. So please welcome them to Climate One today. Mike, you get the award for the best name, a guy with the name Tunnel who is in transportation. (laughs) That uh, you must have known from an early age what you were going to do. But let's begin with with John and and tell us about some of these recent fuel efficiency standards for trucks. Why do they matter? What happened? What's the impact of what's happened? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Uh, This is a really interesting time for the the trucking industry, uh, and it's important to have a little bit of background uh, to know that uh, starting in 2010, uh, all new trucks sold in the United States have to be super clean. Uh, and this that was part of a multi-year program phased in by the U.S. EPA uh, that resulted in trucks getting much cleaner from a criteria emission perspective. So that's NOx and particulate matter. So now those uh, the new trucks being sold are really clean, and, and that's going to really help public health. And so the, now the challenge is, how do we make those trucks even more efficient to reduce our dependence on oil and more efficient to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? So uh, what's exciting now is that we've got some, some decent public policy in place, and the engineering talent that was dedicated to really cleaning up the criteria emissions is now going to be applied to helping reduce uh, dependence on oil and cut greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a really exciting period, and I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in this space. So cleaner air, higher fuel efficiency. Mike Tunnel, the uh, trucking industry actually went along with this, uh, which has not always been been the case. So why did the truckers uh, uh, get get on board with this technological change driven by government? Well, back in 2008, we adopted a sustainability plan. And one of the pillars of that plan was looking at better fuel efficiency. And we, we identified that as a need among the industry and government 
acknowledged that and kind of got the wheels turning to get this to make it happen. And we attended a White House ceremony not too long ago that put the bill in place or the law in place that would make this happen. And we'll have it kicks in in 2014, and we'll expect to see about six percent better fuel economy uh, as much as that, uh, ramping up to 20 percent by 2018. So, um, you know, saving fuel is. Fuel can be at times the second most uh, highest expense of a trucking company, and so saving fuel will save money and also help the environment. And I think the EPA estimated that the return on investment was about 24 months for some of the technology put in place to meet these standards. Is that about right? That's kind of the slot fleets look at. They like to see a 24-month return, and uh, that's kind of the framework EPA worked in. So we're hopeful. Fleets are really different, have different types of operations. So some may, you know, get less, some more, and so it really depends. But that 24 months is a very important kind of milestone. Yeah, not not too long. Uh, David, let's talk with uh, uh, you about the impact this will have on companies that are trying to develop alternative technologies. Is this really going to open up markets for companies like yours that are trying to do hybrids and other uh, non-petroleum-based uh, technologies for trucks? I think it really does. Quantum Technologies has focused on developing electric and hybrid electric drive systems for a lot of passenger app, uh, vehicle applications. And we've also developed alternative fuel vehicles, such as vehicles that run on natural gas mm-hmm. and hydrogen. And a lot of that has been in, in fairly high volume, but only in the passenger automotive sector. And we really do now see that broadening into the heavy-duty sector. And just as one example, we developed some brand-new tanks for heavy-duty semis and large trash trucks. These are 25-inch diameter carbon fiber-wound tanks that store natural gas, similar to the natural gas that you have in your oven or barbecue today, but you're running a vehicle. And with these two tanks, you can now run over 500 miles. And historically, that was always one of the issues, is the, the range limitation operating on some of the alternative fuel and concerns about there not being enough stations. But with right. the larger tanks and now the longer range, we think that that's, that's really, that concern has gone away. Okay, well, we'll get into all this, but John, you want to jump? Well, I, I just want to say that uh, I think the, the rule that the federal government uh, approved, a joint rulemaking by the U.S. EPA and, and National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, I think will encourage fleets over this short term to develop sort of best available technology that's there today. It won't really be technology forcing It won't encourage companies to take advantage of of the kind of technology that that Dave's firm has and really switch to an alternative fuel. Having said that, you look at natural gas, and some companies are really starting to make the switch because it makes good economic sense. Mm -hmm. We've developed some new processes here in the United States to to explore and develop natural gas, uh, and the long-term outlook for that fuel is, is very low in terms of price. So... Uh, a lot of fleets are giving it serious consideration now and moving over because it reduces their dependence on oil, uh, but it also is, a, is an economic uh, value proposition. Uh, Mike, do you agree that the natural gas is uh, maybe is it less volatile than petroleum? Is that one reason? Or is it it's, there's certainly there's a, uh, an abundance of natural gas because of the fracking that's happening in the United States. And yeah. It's an American source versus uh, from overseas. And I think with the price of fuel being... Um, you know, has been hovering three, four dollar range. It's really made people look a lot harder at 
you know, what they're using and what alternatives there are. So fleets are beginning to look more in the area of alternative fuels, um, natural gas, um, whatever, as in an effort to cut some of the fuel cost and see now there's flip side to that. The equipment is more expensive and so you pay more up front. Maybe you'll pay less uh, over the, you know, in use, in the in use segment. But, um, so, you know, it's it's balances. Fleets have to look and decide, you know, where how it all works. And then fuel availability is a, a real key issue because fueling stations cost about a million dollars for a natural gas fueling station, and um, they're they're somewhat limited. You've seen bus fleets use them, maybe garbage fleets use them, but getting them into the over-the-road segment has been fairly slow, and there's not a huge availability. I would venture to say it'd be very difficult to drive a natural gas truck across the country right now. That is probably changing. Um, The question is how quickly and, you know, when the critical mass will be reached. John Bozell, you're a little more optimistic on that infrastructure on the interstates. It's one thing to have a central depot where the garbage trucks go back every night, but it's another thing to string them all along I-95 or I-5, something like that. Yeah, you know, the, the technology is really proven for natural gas. Uh, we don't see it as much here in the Bay Area, but down in Southern California, there are more than 6,000 transit buses running on, on natural gas. Uh, and I think the, all the reliability issues have, have been addressed and I think now with a low cost of natural gas, uh, so there are a lot of fleets taking a really serious look at it. And, and there's sort of an 80-20 rule with, with trucks, uh, some of the big trucking uh, operations, in that there are a very small number of very big truck stops uh, that you, where you can buy a lot of things, uh, including natural gas. Uh, and I think uh, we'll see over the next couple of years a, a, lot, of, a lot more of those major truck stops put in natural gas stations. Now, having said that, there have been some very critical federal incentives for natural purchase of natural gas trucks to address the upfront cost and to put in stations. And unless Congress acts, some of those incentives uh, could go away. And I, I really think it's in the best interest of the nation to continue those incentives because uh, there are a lot of hidden incentives for, for oil, as, as we know. And, and on an average year, you know, we're spending about $400 billion a year to import oil, uh, and, and a lot of that revenue goes to folks that aren't necessarily supportive of the United States. So we ought to be taking action to, to reduce our dependence on oil in a very serious way. The trucking industry consumes about 25% of the nation's fuel. So if we have a $400 billion oil import bill, the trucking industry is responsible for about $100 billion. And wouldn't it be great if we were using that money to pay for people to develop fuel and, and produce the fuel here in the United States and sending, instead of sending it overseas. Mike Tunnell, uh, let's get you in on that. I mean, you have a national organization with a presence in Washington. Are, are you advocating for extension of some of those natural gas uh, supports? Do you have a view whether petroleum is better or gas is better? Well, we're obviously watching it very closely. And, you know, the tone in Congress is really looking at uh, ways of cutting uh, so incentives aren't necessarily being looked at favorably. Um, fleets are using the incentives, so to the extent they're available, um, there, there is demand for it. I just don't know with the tone of Congress whether the future, what it holds. Uh, Biodiesel is another example. Um, there's a tax credit associated with that that 
could go away. And it just is hard to know where where this will all end up. So assume that Congress is in the X mode and they're, they're cutting things and, and, and uh, price supports or incentives are not going to be extended. What does that do to natural gas? Does that pull the rug out from natural gas? Is it, how much is it reliant on uh, government support at this stage? I would say it's 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 very helpful, uh, and it, and it is a is an appropriate investment for for the federal government to make uh, in that sector. Uh, the state of California has some of its own money that it provides uh, this year, ten million dollars in incentives to purchase natural gas trucks here in the state. But you know, if you look at it, we're 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 paying for it one way or the other. Uh, natural gas is a cleaner fuel, so we're paying for you know uh, harmful emissions uh, in in healthcare arena. Uh, we're paying for it by the, the cost of importing all that oil and where those revenues are used by others to, to not, to not, uh, for our nation's benefit. So, uh, one way or another, we're paying for it, so we ought to continue these incentives. Well, the other people we haven't mentioned here are the people on the extraction side of natural gas, and there's a lot of concern about fracking, hydraulic fracturing, and, uh, poisoning water systems, et cetera. So that's, that needs to be part of the equation. John or Mike, do you want to? I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I, I think the, the industry needs to come forward and say, hey, here are a set of best practices. Uh, let's make sure everybody's following it. MIT put out a study and said if, if best practices are follow, followed, fracking uh, it should not be an issue. Uh, so I think that's something worth exploring. And then also what we've been trying to do is help promote something that the, that the Swedes are doing, which is developing renewable natural gas. Uh, and that's a tremendous fuel where you take biological material, you put it in a digester, then you clean it up, and the Swedes are injecting that into the gas pipeline, and it's being used in the transportation sector very effectively, and that's a very low-carbon, uh, renewable form of methane that can be blended with the fossil natural gas. So that's taking something like farm waste or... Exactly. Uh, from landfill, that sort of thing, biomethane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David Mazzocca, yeah. Yeah, in fact, a lot of the tanks that we sell today go to fleets that are either large... Uh, fuel tanks. Companies. You keep saying tanks. Fuel I'm tanks. thinking, I'm, I'm imagining uh, military tanks. But yeah, fuel <laughs> tanks. Okay. Yeah, fuel tanks. Okay. Are uh, going to a number of these large waste companies and also to farms, a lot of dairy farms. They're essentially creating their own fuel with the material that's on their site. So for them, the fuel is extremely low cost. So they, they're the producer and the user, so they don't need exactly. to sort of ship it off-site to another customer. They create a closed loop then. Exactly. Interesting. So um, our guests here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are David Mazaika, Chief Operating Officer at Quantum Technology, John Bosell from CalStart, and Mike Tunnel from the American Trucking Association. Um, Let's talk about the, the low-carbon fuel standard. This is another policy here in, in California uh, that has been driving, uh, again, away from petroleum. Is that favoring natural gas? Is that something that's, that's uh, impacting fuel decisions by, by, by truck operators, Mike Tunnel? Well, in terms of the low-carbon fuel standard, it requires a 20% reduction in the carbon content of the diesel fuel we use today by 2020. And it's really a question of how to get there. Um, the, you know, the traditional path and the path the federal government is looking at through their uh, renewable fuel standard is more of a biodiesel-based um, approach. Uh, that doesn't get you where California wants to be. And consequently, you need to supplement somehow. You know, maybe that has some role, but the question is, what else is there? 
natural gas will have to have some role to, in order for California to reach the goal. Electricity and hydrogen are two other potentials, but in the long haul trucking arena, that, you know, isn't really uh, production level in the time frame California needs. So it really is um, a question of how do you get there in California and the interaction between the national renewable fuel program and California's pull on that. And, and your association is involved in litigation with some refiners on the low carbon fuel standard. What do you what do you object to? Or what do you want to happen? The real concern is the impact of the California standard on the national standard. The national standard has flexibility built in to allow um, biodiesel, ethanol, and ethanol to be used where it's produced in the Midwest. Basically, the California standard has a pull that will require that biodiesel and and ethanol to be trained out to the West Coast and trucked to the terminals for blending. Um, there really isn't production facility in California, so rather than using those fuels where they're located have the least environmental impact, you're creating more of a draw. And, and that's the real concern. And California believes that they will create their own um, uh you know, self-contained fueling system to meet the needs and, you know. Based on what? Based on, on what do we have here in California that we should be using? They, they expect some type of agricultural base, uh, product, but that is, has proven to be a little more difficult using cellulosic biodiesel than, than it has been thought of. And that's still in the research and development stage. And the low carbon fuel standard is kicking in as we speak. So, um, you know, how how to get there is the big question. But isn't that a real a problem for the energy oil companies to solve? I mean, that they have to, they're the ones on the hook here to to, to, uh, to produce this stuff, whether it's from cellulosic or ethanol or, or biomethane. Aren't, isn't that their, isn't that their problem, John Yeah, the, the oil companies will be the, the point of regulation on the low carbon fuel standard. Uh, and, and I think it will be a, a bit of a challenge for them to, to meet it, but I, I believe that there are enough creative uh, engineers and technicians uh, at these major oil companies and enough resources uh, that they'll be able to figure it out. Uh, there it seems are, like a modest goal. It's only 10% reduction, right, which seems right, modest. In, in right, in the, in the carbon intensity by 2020. Uh, so, you know, th- there's quite a bit of time here for, for this to be figured out. Uh, you know, natural gas can help. Uh, this renewable form of natural gas is really, that has a very low carbon score. Uh, I think uh, the trucking industry is very fragmented. Uh, so there are places where electric, electricity will make sense. Uh, and you could have some fleets running on electricity generated by solar power. Uh, and, and we know some fleets that are already looking at that very option. Uh, and then tomorrow on, in your program, you'll be talking to some of the leading California next-gen biofuel companies, uh, firms like Solozyme and, and uh, uh, Amaris in particular is working on generating diesel from a sugar cane plant, not from the sugar, but from the rest of the plant. Very exciting venture that they have down in, in Brazil on this, that topic. Though, to be fair, it's very promising, but no one's really producing at scale yet, right? And they do That's tend right. to kind of push back their time frames. Oh, we're going to have this much by the end of the year. And then it's like, well, the middle of next year. And it keeps, mm. it keeps you know, this, this stuff is hard and new. So there is a, is there a legitimate concern about reliability of enough supply that, that our system needs? 
I, th- I think there will be, you know, some concerns. I think it's going. This is a a regulation that will encourage them to be more innovative and more creative than they have in the past. Uh, but I think they're they're up for the challenge. You look at what the the truck manufacturers and the car manufacturers have done. There have been some tough standards put on them, and they have, as a result, innovated, developed more efficient vehicles. Now it's time for the folks on the fuel side to be part of the party. So, so Mike, to come back to that, I mean, if, if you're the your members are the buyers, and, and the petroleum companies have to meet this mandate, they're going to satisfy your need, right? I mean, so what's well, the concern? We, we certainly hope. Obviously, the price of getting there is is a real concern to the industry because. Um, Prices could go up for lower carbon fuels, you're worried. Right. And as you, you know, it could have national impacts, too, not just in California, that if the draw is pulling resources from other parts of the country, then the whole fueling scheme is, you know, how it impacts that is in question. So it's concerned about California sucking the fuel out of the Midwest? Because well, <laughs> and it's more of an interstate and more of the biodiesel-related Products and you know whatever your whatever your lowest carbon fuel is um, could be drawn to California because that's the mandated market, mm-hmm. and so it, it doesn't you know there's definitely some uh, equity concerns in terms of how that'll affect not just California prices because the I think the conventional wisdom is that this will be a more expensive fuel product in California. Although, you know, there will be those who will debate that point, um, but also how those how that affects the rest of the country. So, is the does the American Trucking Association support a national low carbon fuel standard? We have been, you know, working with the EPA on the renewable fuel standard, which is very similar to a low carbon fuel standard, although it is a, a bio product standard, and it tells you how much ethanol, biodiesel is, is for sale. And, and what we like about that much better is it's flexible. It, as I mentioned, it lets the, the biodiesel be produced and used where it's best, you know, where it's manufactured. So, um, you know, that approach has worked well, and it's a little... You know, I, I think our concern is just all these low-carbon fuel standards popping up at the state level, not being very cohesive with the national plan. And as you know, we've talked about in the past, uh, carbon it really isn't a local pollutant; it's global. And so, you really want a, a, a good plan going in. And the piecemeal plans have the potential to have some, uh, you know, some drawbacks. So, you know, I. I We've had people here who've, who've taken a, the flip side of that to say that the renewable fuel standard says you've got to produce this much from corn and this much from cellulosic, and the government's artificially putting quantitative figures out there, whereas the low-carbon fuel standard says, look, it's, you got to reduce by 10% from a baseline. You can use corn or sugar or, you know, hemp, I don't know, whatever you want to use. You just get, you can pick your, your feedstock. Here's the baseline. And a lot of free market people like that better than the government kind of picking winners and losers, say, give us a, a, a draw line and, and we'll get there with whatever technologies and let the technologies kind of compete against themselves rather than government sort of saying, you know, this much corn, which there may not be a market for that much corn. I think that's a really good point. If you, I think Governor Schwarzenegger implemented the low carbon fuel standard. 
uh, I think with a lot of good policy input from folks. And it was a fuel uh, neutral, uh, technology Some neutral standard. It just yeah. said we need to hit the 10% lower carbon intensity number. It didn't say how. And whereas the, the federal policy is, was dictated a little more by key agricultural interests, uh, the corn lobby, uh, the soybean but, folks, yeah. and the corn folks, and and it's it's actually helping to drive some positive change, but it wasn't uh, you know performance standard based, and and that's ultimately what the best public policy is. It it doesn't pick the the technology winners, but it says this is where we want to go, uh, market the industry. You guys figure it out. We talked about the, the recent round of, of uh, regulations for big trick and we're, big truck, and we're going to get to pickups in, in a minute. Uh, uh, but let's talk about the next round after 2018. What happens then? There's been sort of a modest, uh, you know, 20% reduction in the next uh, seven years or so, mainly using existing technology, things that the manufacturers know how to do. The next round, uh, is that going to be the same, or are there going to be some more breakthrough? technology required, and how tough will the next round be? Maybe that's still to be worked out. That's a great question, and (laughs) I don't know that I know the answer to that, but we fully expect to see a next round um, of this, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what that'll uh, entail, but obviously this is the very first step of fuel economy standards for heavy trucks, and I don't think it ends here. Yeah. So that's a really, really important last point that, that Mike made is that this is the first time there's been a, this kind of standard, fuel economy standard placed on, on the trucking industry. And so that's a very important precedent uh, that's been established. It, it, as I said earlier, it's really not a technology forcing, fairly easy to comply with uh, regulation. Uh, but in this, and next we should say it's going from about six miles a gallon to seven miles a gallon. Exactly, okay. it's a whole new. Right. It's a different. You Which know. doesn't sound like much, but percentage-wise, right. it's a big deal. Whereas the federal, the passenger car market during that period in 2017 to 2025 is going proposed to go from 37 miles per gallon to 54 miles per gallon. So they're counting on some pretty significant advances in technology, and I, I think there will be folks pushing. Uh, the trucking industry to do more in this next set of regulation. That's my prediction. So if the cars can do so much, why can't the big trucks? I think it comes down to the pulling the weight. You know, there's a, I don't know, what's a car coming at about 4,000 pounds. Right. You know, a truck, the gross vehicle weight limit on a truck is 80,000 pounds. They don't all operate at that level. Um, probably a small percentage do, but they're probably pulling somewhere in the you know average 60,000 pound range. So you you know the power required to do that is is cuts into the fuel economy. I think a lot of David. it though is that the industry really hasn't focused on that. As was brought up earlier, the industry focus was on cleaning up the emissions of the big trucks, and now it really needs to move on fuel economy. I think there are some good examples of large hybrid vehicles. There's a, a very large number of hybrid buses out there around the U.S. today that are 30, 40, up to 60,000 pounds, and they've improved their fuel economy 20, 30 percent or more. So I think it, it certainly can be done. It's just the industry needs to focus on that. And now with the new legislation, there really are some targets out there that that the industry can focus on and really strive to meet. And I think the technology is is out there to be able to support those types of, of levels. It will be a wide spectrum, everything from aerodynamic improvements to hybrid drive systems and different fuels. 
But these things, pay, a lot of time that we talk here in conversations about efficiency, there's the agency problem. You know, the tenant doesn't pay, the landlord doesn't pay the utility bill, so he has no incentive to, to invest in efficiency. But here, we're talking about cities or garbage companies that own and operate their fleets. So if they pay a little more up front, they're going to recoup that cost over the life cycle but we just seem so fixated on that upfront cost. We don't want to swallow that that extra margin up front, even though we know it's going to be good for us in the long run. Is that fair, Mike Tunnel? Well, I think there there is that in the equation. I, I think uh, fleets, you know, ideally you want to buy new equipment. You want to buy the new car, you know. And so to the extent that, you know, there are added costs going forward, uh, you know, the trucking industry has absorbed quite a bit of cost increase in their new equipment with the uh, recent emission standards that hit in 2004, 7, 10. And so without getting any improvement in fuel economy, now I would expect a similar type of uh, cost increase, but the, the benefit is you will get better fuel economy and lower greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, I... I think the history shows that we have taken some upfront cost, and we're pretty excited about this time we get something back. So, <laughs> right, right, right. It's kind of human nature, you know. Exercise today, and you'll be some benefit in the future. Or eat healthy today, and it'll be good for you tomorrow. We're we're sort of so focused on. On today, uh, let's talk about pickup trucks. Uh, important part of uh, pickup trucks, SUVs, minivans. Um, David Mazoika, let's talk about what the, the hybrids there. I mean, there's a bit of an image issue. I mean, uh, with you know, Ford pickup truck is the best-selling car in America, and are, are the guys who buy pickup trucks, I mean, is it, are, does it fit the image to buy a hybrid? Isn't that kind of <laughs> sissy or you know? <laughs> <laughs> Bob Seger, I'm just trying to imagine Bob Seger advertising a, you know, a hybrid. I'm not sure I can see. Like it. a rock hybrid? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, when hybrids first were available in the U.S., you had a big choice of two, right? It was a Toyota Prius and uh, the Honda Insight. Now you go out today, there's so many hybrids, you can't even list them on a piece of paper. And you've got everything from very high-performance hybrids coming out of people like, uh, you know, Fisker, Audi. The Fisker, Ferrari, which is a beautiful... Fisker, which, you know, we designed the Q-Drive, the hybrid drive system that, that's in the Fisker that's going on in production right now. Gorgeous and so automobile. That, and that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a real man's cool sports car. Yeah, so I don't think anybody's going to call that sissy. And there's a no, lot of people huh? out there that built, you know, heavy-duty, like I said, hybrid buses and trucks that have been running around for, you know, 10, 15 years. So I think the technology is there to do it. And especially in pickup trucks, it's a great application. As you brought up, you know, the Ford F-150 has been the best-selling truck or best-selling vehicle in America 27 years at least in a row now. I mean, it's a huge part of the number of vehicles that are driven around the U.S. And it's not only by farmers out in the Midwest. You know, they're all over. So I think it really is kind of an every person's vehicle. And there's a lot of fleets that operate these trucks to do service around the country. A lot of utilities use a large number of pickup trucks, uh, large service fleets, people like uh, Sears, uh, Verizon, uh, Florida Power and Light, Dow Chemical. You know, there's a lot of big companies that use a lot of pickup trucks in their service. They do a lot of stop-and-go driving, and they can really benefit by having hybrid powertrains in their vehicles. And we have one particular model that we're launching next year that's what's called a PHEV 35 or a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle 35, meaning it has a 35-mile all-electric range before it goes into a hybrid mode. 
And there you can drive the first 35 miles all electrically. And then after that, you still get a 20 to 25 percent fuel economy improvement. So when are we going to start to see hybrid pickup trucks on the market? When can, when, I, when can I go buy one? Well, I think you're going to start to see some vehicles in that sector come out late next year and in 2013. I think that's when you're really going to see it move from passenger vehicles into the pickup truck area. You know, they are out there in demonstration fleets at this point. They're just not out there in mass volume yet. And, and I think it is government regulation that is helping to drive that. It's, it's a message that says uh, we, we need more efficient, we need advanced technology vehicles. And I just want to address your, your cultural point about whether these, these vehicles <laughs> right, are, 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 are sissy or not. You know, the, I think of, you know, Mike's membership, uh, you know, the, the, the truckers of America. They're some of the most patriotic uh, folks that I've ever come across. And, and uh, I think for them, ending the dependence uh, on imported oil is, is a huge deal. And then when they, they get into a vehicle like Dave's and they find out, hey, it gives me added capability. All of a sudden, I've got electrical power at the work site uh, from from my vehicle that I didn't have before. Hey, the vehicle's quiet while I'm at the work, so- work site. I'm no longer getting hassled by the city or the neighbors. They're going to find out, hey, there, there's a lot of great benefits to it. In addition, I'm really doing the right thing for the United States of America. I drove my kids to school in a Chevy Volt, which I have on loan this morning. It's quiet. They thought it was cool. People were looking at it. Oh, there's this, you know, so there's definitely a cool factor mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to electric cars. Mike Tonelli, Mike, don't you want to jump in? Um, well, I, I would just say that, you know, it seems your, like... Your members really want to save... Is there a patriotic element, like John says, oh, to your members? Well, definitely. I mean, they're, they're very patriotic, and, you know, it's... Uh, they do what they can for the country, and... And, you know, every day they're out there working hard, making sure everybody gets the goods delivered and in the stores. I mean, it, it's kind of, a, in some respect, a quiet system. You walk in a store, everything's there, and, um, you know, you don't think about it. So it's it's really... But how much is that, that sort of warm and fuzzy that, or that, that, that uh, feeling of, well, if we get our fuel from our own country versus from, from overseas, is that part of the buying co- equation, or is it just hard numbers... You know, that's kind of soft and squishy, but the CFO says, look, it's got a pencil out, and, you know, it's hard economics. Well, I, I think what it comes down to is, um, you know, there, there's definitely that um, dependence on foreign oil is, you know, lessening that. But I think it's also reliability. And, you know, when you're in this business, there really aren't any excuses in terms of if you have somebody expecting next day delivery or a store, you know, bread on Monday, you, you've got to be there. And your equipment has to be good. Your fuel has to be there. And there's no, no room for error. And so that's probably paramount. You and petroleum is proven for 100 and, years and, and it's reliable. And, and you know, and that's that's the hard part of everything is you know we're we're in evolving times. So the change, uh, you know, natural gas has been used by the industry for probably 20 years in some form, um, but only recently have we seen the original engine manufacturers start making trucks that run on natural gas. They were dabbling, but it was never to the extent, you know, John talked about the reliability of the equipment now, and he's right. You know, it's much more reliable than it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as we see these evolutions, I think, uh, 
it holds well for for the future. Um, it's just uh, getting there and and the timing. I, I think John, just just me just to follow up on that. I think uh, Mike makes an excellent point. Is uh, and, and to answer your question, is that the the truckers I think want to do the right thing. They are very patriotic. They want to reduce our defense and oil, but it can't cost them an arm and a leg to do it. And and uh, I think this is where it, a very appropriate place for for the government. Uh, to be providing incentives, uh, realizing that it is in the, in the best interest of our, our nation. Ultimately, we'll be able to, if we move ahead with this, we'll be able to reduce our, our health care expenses. We'll be able to reduce our defense expenditures uh, and hopefully avert uh, climate change uh, from, from occurring as well. And, and, and on top of that, in the trucking sector in particular, and we're, we're doing it, having a big national conference in Baltimore next, next week on electric and hybrid trucks, these are U.S. companies that are at the forefront, companies like Dave's, uh, that are developing this technology, and there's a huge export opportunity. If you look at China, uh, they have a much higher percentage of their vehicles are commercial vehicles. They're not passenger cars. So if we can develop the technology here, prove it out, this could be an export opportunity for the United States and a, and a huge job uh, creator opportunity. John Bosell is CEO of CalStar, a consulting firm. Our other guests at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club today are Mike Tunnell, Director of Environmental Affairs at the American Trucking Association, and David Mazaika, Chief Operating Officer at Quantum Technology. Well, let's pick up on that innovation point, both the global aspect and the California point. Uh, there's, uh, David, there's a lot of companies... Uh, well, big rigs are not made in California, but there's a lot of startups who are trying to make pieces of drivetrains and new technology that go into big trucks. And you're just one of several that are down in Southern California. And do you have a sense of how, how many there are, how many jobs are there in, in this sort of uh, new generation of truck technology, truck technology companies in California? Sure. I think California really has been on the leading edge of electric and hydroelectric vehicles, you know, since the early 90s, if, if not before that. We had, of course, had the first round with the EV1 and a lot of the components. And uh, that was the General was Motors first the generation, GM, first generation one, were developed here. And a lot of the components for the hybrids that are that are made today were actually designed out here in California. And there's a huge number of hybrid electric vehicle engineers out here in California. Most of the major major auto manufacturers do have some type of advanced technology center that's down in the Southern California area. So really, a lot of that work is is done here. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people that are, have been working on these technologies now for a decade, mainly in passenger automotive. But there are companies that have sprung up over the past maybe three to, to ten years that have also been working on heavy duty. Now, it hasn't been out there in the masses yet. It's in some small demonstration programs. You know, down at the ports of LA and Long Beach, where 40% of all the cargo comes into the U.S., there's a big movement to expand that corridor because the amount of goods that are coming in the country is expected to double here very quickly. And they're really trying to focus on a zero-emission corridor. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking at how can we really power these big rigs that have to go 5 to 20 miles to get from the port itself to the railheads where the, the cargo will get on the train or get into a different long-distance long truck. And they really want to make that zero emission. So there's a number of trucking companies down there that are developing technologies to be able to support that. And John Bozell? Right, and, and this is a, a really key area, a fascinating area where you got... Uh, I-710 corridor, about a 20-mile stretch, uh, and we're working with the from the port of Long Beach to, to the to the rail yards in East LA. And right now, it's known as the diesel death zone. 
uh, because of the documented uh, impacts on public health and communities and, and the folks living on, along that corridor. Uh, and so there is going to be, a, hopefully as the economy rebounds, there will be a need uh, to expand capacity. Uh, and for that 20-mile stretch, we'll need to look at a zero-emission solution. That's what the Air District is saying. If you want additional capacity, the trucks will operate, have to operate on, on zero emissions only. And it's, it's really not the pipe dream that it used to be. It's still a challenge. But there are a lot of trucks now running around uh, in a zero emission capability. Smaller vehicles, mind you, like in here in the Bay Area, uh, uh, we have uh, Frito-Lay has some all-electric trucks. Uh, UPS and FedEx have hybrid electric trucks. If a big rig operated like the Chevy Volt that you're driving, so it's mm-hmm. a, uh, you have a 40-mile range, all-electric range, and then it turns into hybrid mode in the Volt. If a big rig could be developed that operated like that, and you could select when you wanted to go in the all-electric mode, that could be a very interesting opportunity. Mike Tunnel, possibility? Uh, there is interest uh, in that type of technology. The application to the larger trucks hasn't quite um, gotten there yet, but big batteries take it, a lot of battery yeah, power I, to move I, a big rig. I think rig. the question is, if, over time if, it if you're spending most of your time at a highway speed, what is the benefit from a hybrid system where hybrid traditionally has generated a lot of its benefit from braking and stop and go traffic? So if you're not in that type of application, what is there a benefit from doing it given the added cost? And um, I don't think anybody's quite figured that one out yet. So. But there are definitely folks working at it that, that we're, we're in touch with. Uh, and, and it is, there's a lot of traffic that's just local, stays, say, in the port area around the port, same here in the Bay Area. A lot of traffic that just goes uh, from here out to Stockton, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's an opportunity. Uh, the California Air Resources Board should be uh, given some credit because they actually operate an incentive program that has helped fund over 700 hybrid trucks here in California uh, and now more than 100 pure electric trucks. And the California Energy Commission has also provided some additional funding to support that program. And on the hybrid on the highways, I mean, anyone who's driven in L.A. knows that you know, the highways are stop and go. Right? Mm-hmm. So you know, <laughs> a lot of the time. So you're on the brakes all the time. I want to circle sure. back to the, the, the California companies. Is it just research and development, or is there actual manufacturing of this technology in California? The jobs question. Well, I think there's a lot, certainly a lot of research and development activities that go on. Is there manufacturing of components? Yes, there are, but they're in relatively low volumes, I would say, at this first, point. First-generation yeah. manufacturing, close to the engineers to make sure they get it right. And then they're going to go make it in China. I would say, well, I didn't say that, but no, I, I think there's a lot of work that's going on in California. But will the jobs stay here? I think that is a very important question. And that's something that, that really the state needs to look at is how can they really facilitate the technology that now has been developed here and make sure that it really does get produced here, at least in the U.S., if not in California, instead of moving overseas. And that, that honestly is a big challenge. But a lot of the technology still is here in the U.S., I, and I think that's a great point. We have great R&D happening here. A lot of great startups and Silicon Valley investors have really helped. Uh, and, and we need to work in the state as a team to see those companies go to manufacturing. Now, we've seen that with Tesla on the light-duty side, and hopefully they will, they will expand. Just over the hill here from here in the Bay Area in, in, in Stockton, there's right. a company called uh, Electric Vehicles International, EVI. Mm-hmm. Uh, UPS recently agreed to buy 100 of their uh, pure electric trucks, and they'll be deployed here. Uh, there's a company down in, in Torrance called U.S. Hybrid that is manufacturing 
components for heavy-duty hybrid systems. Uh, there's Dave's old firm down in San Diego, Blue Ways, that is also developing components for heavy-duty hybrid. So, and then there's Sao is a company down in Hayward, a startup battery company. Qualion, a company that's going into production with uh, with batteries in California. So I think there's the opportunity, but we do need to work as a team uh, to help encourage the creation of jobs here in the state. And why is UPS buying electric trucks? I mean, is it because the government's wagging a stick at them, or because uh, is it for uh, marketing purposes, or what's driving that? I, I think it, I don't think it's regulatory at this point. Uh, I, I think one is green positioning. You know, really helps yeah. them. But it, it gets back to this question about the trucking industry is solely dependent on a, a global commodity, oil, that uh, fluctuates in price, uh, is dependent on all sorts of crazy factors. You don't know what's going to happen. So imagine a company like UPS. Uh, they, they convert X percent of their vehicle to electric power. Uh, the vehicles are running around during the day. They have solar panels, uh, are collecting sun during the day. With the, the batteries that they've retired from their old electric vehicles, they're storing that power. All of a sudden, they're in charge of their whole energy supply chain. And isn't that a more refreshing opportunity for them versus going out in the futures market trying to figure out what's going to happen to oil, doing hedges, probably losing money on hedges, and, and getting caught up in complicated Wall Street schemes? Mike Tunnel, I mean, your members... Yeah, I, you know, I would agree with John that it's really a matter of um, the opportunity to diversify your energy resources. You look at, you know, our electricity, it, water, natural gas, you know, there's a, a diverse mix of energy sources that generates electricity on the transportation side, you're pretty much stuck. One thing. Yeah, yeah. one. So, you know, I, I think companies are realizing that diversity does have opportunity in, in stabilizing pricing. Our guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are John Bussell, CEO of CalStart, David Mazaika from Quantum Technology, and Mike Tunnel from the American uh, Trucking Association. I think you wanted to jump in there on something. Yeah, we just, uh, I agree with the points you, that you both made there. I think that you know, uh, in terms of the, the long-distance trucks that you were talking about earlier, there certainly are some technologies like the aerodynamics that are going to be much more effective, quicker quicker payback there. And then when you look at a lot of the regional truckers, when, when we talk to them, the regional truck fleet managers, you know, they really want to do what they consider is the right thing. They want to try and operate on domestic fuels. They are, you know, big big patriotic entities out there. But they do have to live within a budget. There's no question, you know, and they've got to deliver their their materials on time. So they want to they want to move forward in that area. What's what's the best way really for them to do that? And a lot of them do see moving into alternative fuels as a hedge, right? They're trying to plan. Like you brought up UPS. I mean, here's a company that's highly highly dependent on fuel costs, right? Fuel goes up a penny, and it's a huge impact to a company like UPS. And if you look at the future prices of electricity and natural gas and the alternative fuels, they're not expected to increase at any near the rate that oil is expected to increase. So I think in general they see it as, as a longer-term hedge. How can they diversify? Like you said? Electricity, Mike Tunnel, is regulated, tend to be you know, much longer-term, more predictable price stability. It could be upward creeps rather than these volatile spikes that we see in the oil markets. Right. And, and we have seen you know, much more speculation on the oil market, sure. too. And so the price fluctuations you're seeing are, are much greater than we have seen traditionally. And I think 
people are looking for a hedge against that and looking at what alternatives are out there so that they, they're not just bought into one thing. You talked about reliability of supply earlier, and there's a number of people who think that peak oil has happened or is, is happening, and if not, the, uh, if, it, if the supplies are not running out, at least the, the easy-to-get, cheap-to-get-at light crude has already been, been sucked out of the ground, and that any future oil extraction will be more expensive, dirtier, heavier, that sort of thing. Does the American Trucking Association have a view on peak oil or the, sort of the future supply of petroleum? Um, I... I don't know that I'm really qualified to talk on on that point, but um, you know, obviously, it's a question of how much is out there, and you hear all kinds of estimates across the board. Right. So it's ha- it happened yeah. yesterday. It'll never yeah. happen. Who do you believe? It, it, it's hard so, to know. Yeah. Um, we mentioned natural gas. There's a couple different kinds of natural gas. There's compressed natural gas, and there's liquefied natural gas. Uh, let's talk about the difference in which we think will happen in, in the transportation sector. Most so far, there's taxis in in San Francisco. They run on compressed natural gas. That's the big tank and the uh, big tank in the trunk, but you can't put your luggage in there, right? Um, uh, David, let's talk about natural gas. Whether you think the future is going to be compressed or liquefied, and what the difference is. Well, today the real difference is liquefied natural gas is a more dense fuel, so you can store more energy, more fuel in a given volume. And so historically in some of the heavy-duty trucks that need to go longer distances, that's where you've seen LNG used. Now, CNG is in compressed tanks, and historically those tanks have been quite small, so the range was fairly limited. But there are new tanks now, like the ones that we make, where you can drive 500 miles on a Class 8, you know, 80,000-pound truck, a big rig. On CNG. Compressed natural gas. On okay. CNG. So you can now get into what I would term regional trucking. You've got distributors, Walmart, Kmart, Coke, Pepsi, that, that stay in localized areas. It's still not, you know, the cross-country drives. I think right now that still is being generally done by LNG trucking just because of the density of the fuel. But I think over time what you're going to see is you can put more and more CNG on a truck, and CNG in general is, is cheaper to operate than an LNG vehicle. Okay. CNG today is about $2 a gallon compared to gasoline or diesel. It's $4 a gallon. So that's a big economic incentive for fleets to operate on a fuel like CNG. I I think Dave's company, Quantum Technologies, has developed a disruptive technology uh, that makes compressed natural gas uh, viable for for longer-distance trucking. Uh, And and nobody really wants to go more than 500 miles without a stop. Uh, (laughs) I don't think humans are capable of that. Uh. And and so uh, I think this, their technology, their new cylinders have made compressed natural gas more viable in in the longer distance trucking sector. Uh, And so I think now fleets will have the option. Do they want to go with compressed or liquefied? Uh, Both are good. They're both making use of a domestic fuel. Uh, that has a longer-term, uh, lower-cost price structure. But mention LNG, and a lot of environmentalists conjure up images of fireballs and opposition to terminals, and it seems, is that not a concern, the volatility and, of a, and combustion of, a, of an accident on a, on a highway with a, a big rig uh, being powered by LNG, John Blissett? You know, I, I think that people may may get that confused from the old debates uh, down in Santa Barbara about the, putting in a big LNG terminal uh, and, and issues around that. When you store that amount of liquefied natural gas, it has to be very cold. I think it's 230 degrees below uh, mm-hmm. zero. 
that is not a big safety issue. It's not really a safety issue at all. Uh, the gas would dissipate if it got into an accident. It would go up in the air versus diesel fuel, which would stay on the ground. So from a safety perspective, I, I, don't, I don't see that. Mike Tunnel, $2 a gallon versus uh, for natural gas versus $4 a gallon for diesel. That's got to be a pretty appealing uh, a difference for your members. Yeah, I mean, the price, and obviously we don't know where prices go in the future, and that's always a consideration. But today's price is very attractive in natural gas. Um, again, there are other considerations beyond just the cost of the sure. fuel itself. You've got... You know, infrastructure. the equipment, infrastructure, your maintenance shops need to be accommodate a gas rather than a liquid and things like that. But there, there are, are um, you know, things you can address, and the price is very attractive. Let's uh, put the microphone out here, and hopefully we'll have some uh, questions from the audience. And, uh, and while we're doing that, I uh, want to ask about NAFTA and whether trucks, trucks from Mexico are going to be uh, included in these efficiency uh, directions that are happening in the United States, John. You know, I, I think the uh, right now my understanding of the, the rule is that uh, the Mexican trucks that are allowed to come to the United States have to stay within sort of a narrow band along the border. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're not a big percentage of, of the vehicle population, but we have a, a very good program here in California called the the Carl Moyer program, uh, where uh, Funds collected from vehicle registration fees are used to help clean up dirty trucks. And I wonder if there's an opportunity, say, to, to put a very small tax on border crossings to pay for a program to clean up any Mexican trucks that would be coming into the United States. I, it's something that probably is worth exploring. Would the American Trucking Association oppose that? Tax on trucks crossing the border? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> not sure. It depends if they're members or not. Let's have an audience uh, question, please. Yes, sir. I'm Bill Grant from San Francisco. Uh, California Air Resources Board has new regulations on diesel emissions that comes into effect on January 1st, 2012. Uh, I wonder if Mike uh, Tunnel can comment on how the local California trucking companies and the, interna- and the interstate trucking companies will uh, uh, respond to that and, and what the law requires and whether the health impacts will be significant. Sure, Bill. Thank you for coming out today. And, uh, yeah, what, starting January 1st, 2012 in California, uh, the state is implementing its program to reduce emissions from trucks, in-use trucks. And they've already enacted several measures at port facilities that are phasing out some of the oldest trucks and requiring emission controls on on trucks that are in use. And at the beginning of the year, uh, a certain model year grouping of trucks will need to have diesel particulate filters installed on them, or fleets can demonstrate that they have 30% of their fleets having diesel particulate filters on, the, on their trucks that operate in California. So that will um, be step one of a multi-year, it's probably a 10, 12-year phase-in where Every truck by 2014, actually in a very short time, by 2014 virtually, every truck in California will have a diesel particulate filter on it. And by 2022, it will be equivalent to the new generation of trucks that has the lower NOx emissions uh, that started in 2010. Every truck in California. 
So it's really a program to accelerate the introduction of newer trucks or the emission control systems on those trucks. And so we'll see that statewide beginning first of the year. And will that ripple across the country? Will it stay in California? Um, it will probably, we have seen some ports adopt similar measures to California, and I don't know about the implications across the country. The, the, California has some unique air quality problems that the rest of the country is not at the extent California is at. So that's really the driver to these programs, sure. and not necessarily but auto companies would say they want to make uh, one product for all the markets. They don't want to have, you know, make certain trucks for California and then other trucks for the rest of the states. I'm um, sorry, cars. The car companies would say that. Does that apply to trucks as well? Well, in these California programs, it's the in-use trucks. The new trucks are all consistent. across. Okay. There's a national standard. CARB and federal EPA have agreed on what that new truck standard is. Very, you know, near zero emission levels for uh, smog-forming pollutants. But now, the, because of California's air quality situation, they're going back and requiring the existing fleet to put on the emission control. And, and this, is, this is a bold and innovative program because all the, the regulatory programs in the past have affected new vehicles sold. That's for passenger car markets and the truck market. And in this case, what CARB said is we got this big problem because we had a bunch of older, uh, dirtier trucks out there. And they'll be out there for another 10, 20, or 30 years. So they, they worked out, I think, generally a, a pretty reasonable uh, set of uh, rules to help encourage the existing in-use fleet to, to adopt the new regulations. It was sort of controversial. And the first set of rules were, were pretty stringent, then CAR backed off on that. But the key challenge is, beyond clean air, how do we get fewer greenhouse gas emissions and reduce dependence on oil? And that's where I think going forward, policy needs to look at integrating those priorities so we get cleaner air, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and reduce dependence on oil. Uh, so that, that's the challenge. And sometimes those are in conflict. Uh, David, you mentioned uh, biomethane uh, digesters. Uh, we've had previous conversations where people say uh, those are good from a greenhouse gas perspective, but they're not so good for the localized air pollution around the farms or the places where that's happening. So sometimes those goals of clean air locally and addressing the global concern are in conflict, though sometimes they might be aligned. Do you have a thought on Well, I think you certainly need to look at the plants as you're building them to, to generate fuel. And whether it's an anaerobic digester, such as you were talking about, or whether it's uh, refining petroleum down in Southern California, I mean, all of these types of processes have emissions, but they can be controlled if they're built properly. So I think that that certainly has to be looked at, but that shouldn't be the driving force. It can it can be controlled. Uh, let's wrap up here and talk about the military as a buyer and driver of some of this technology. Uh, we haven't touched on that yet, um, unless there's any other uh, unless there's any other audience questions. You know, how can the military they uh, real tanks uh, and uh, and obviously lots of vehicles that, that use petroleum. They're moving away. Um, how's that, uh, David Mazoika? How's that affecting the technology market that you see? Uh, the military pull and creating markets for some of these technologies. Good question. I think there's really two areas relative to the military. There's tactical vehicles, vehicles that actually go overseas and are used in another country, and then there's the domestic vehicles that operate on the bases. And we're seeing actually two different areas of growth there. The military is very interested in operating very clean vehicles on the domestic bases, and that's a lot easier to 
to uh, implement initially because all the parts are here locally. You don't have to worry about is it a different fuel? Is it something I have to plug in? You know, you don't have to worry about those types of issues right. that you would on the battlefield. However, the, as you probably know, the military operates the, the single biggest fleet that we have here in the country of vehicles. And so they're a big user of fuel, and fuel is very expensive when you look at what's really the cost of a gallon of diesel to deliver it out to the battlefield. And you'll hear numbers all over the map, everything from $30 a gallon to $250 a gallon. And a lot of that depends on, well, really, where do you have to get that gallon of diesel fuel and how many people are being put in harm's way just to deliver it to wherever that location is. So I think that's honestly the bigger driver. It's not really saving fuel costs for the military. It's really... How can they keep more people out of harm's way, lighten up that logistics trail of having to deliver fuel out there? And the best way to do that is to implement some of the technologies like hybrid drivetrains in these vehicles that can greatly reduce the fuel usage. The military has been moving that out there. They're involved in a number of, I would say, like demonstration programs at this point. But there's not really a high-volume application that's out there yet. So that's something I think that really can be improved. We operate a, a joint program with the National Automotive Center, part of the U.S. Army, uh, and Sander Boxer has been very helpful in getting funding for that program, which we're appreciative of. We're having our big national conference next week with the Army, uh, and we'll be deploying and, and showing that there are a lot of different commercial and military vehicles uh, that can run in, in using hybrid systems. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for the military to reduce its battlefield consumption, which is so expensive and tough to get out there. We're seeing yeah. tankers blown up as they're going All through the, the passes in Afghanistan. Yeah. So if you can reduce the number of tankers going through, that would be a great thing. Hybrid technology is there. It could start doing that today. Uh, we'd like to see the military move a little faster. Through this program that Standard Boxer helped us with, we'll be deploying some uh, hybrid vehicles, trucks, on military bases here in California. Uh, but I think the military could do more on the purchasing side to help move this industry forward. Mike Tunnel, Mike Tunnel, do you see the military as a factor at all, or your members not in the military, so it doesn't really affect? Well, I think what happens is a lot of the technology development that the military gets involved in gets transferred over eventually into the trucking industry and probably passenger car segment as well. Hummers are the classic <laughs> example, right? You know, seeing Hummers on, on natural gas, that sort of thing. Our thanks to uh, our guests here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, uh, John Bosella, CEO of CalStart, David Mazaika, Chief Operating Officer at Quantum Technology, and Mike Tunnell, Director of Environmental Affairs at the American Trucking Association. I'm Greg Dalton, and a podcast of this event is available in the iTunes store by searching for Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming, too.